Glad to have you aboard for the next 60 minutes. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. You can also interact with us on Twitter. Hashtag Giants Chat. It's going to be a jam-packed show. We're going to preview prospects from three different schools today. We're going to talk about Boston College, Kansas State, and Washington State. We're going to try to mix in as many of your phone calls as humanly possible in between the interviews, and we'll tackle an awful lot with respect to the draft in the next 60 minutes. So glad to have you aboard. We want to start, though, with the Giants and ownership reflecting on the Odell Beckham trade as the teams are meeting in Phoenix for the meetings. You're going to have the competition committee determining whether or not they're going to approve some rule changes and so forth. And John Mara and Steve Tisch spoke to members of the Giants media the other day, and they spoke for about 20 minutes at a news conference, and John Mara and Steve Tisch both reflected on... Basically, how challenging it was, Paul, to approve a deal involving Odell Beckham since he meant a lot to the organization. And this was a quote in terms of how difficult it was and the communication between Giants front office executives as well as the front office. John Mara said, quote, my communication to Dave, referring to Dave Gettleman, was that, and obviously he knew this, but we weren't giving him away. If there's an offer that we all think will improve the team in the long run, then we will consider doing it. I told him to call Steve first, and then he called me back. Even then, I told him that I needed some more time to think about it, and I drove home from the office, talked to him on the phone that evening, and ultimately approved it. I will tell you that it was a reluctant approval on my part because I happen to like Odell very much. I recognize the unique talent that he has. It's not easy to trade that player to another team. I understand also that we have a lot of holes that we need to fill. If we make the right decisions with the first pick and the third pick, we obviously like Jabril Peppers a lot, which filled the need for us. I ultimately gave my 50% share of the approval, end quote. So that was John Mara talking to the media, talking about how difficult it was to agree to trade Odell Beckham, but realizing based on what the Giants do with the assets, Paul, and, and this is what Dave Gettleman's thinking is, that they can address a number of issues on the defensive side of the ball, including offense, by having 12 picks to toy with, including two first-rounders. Well, it, it all comes back to something that we had discussed many times on this show before, and I had been discussing on WFAN an awful lot. It was going to take a boatload of value in order to to even consider moving a, a generational player. So this comes as no surprise to me. This is exactly what we had been talking about for months. And the Giants believed that they got the boatload that they needed to pull the trigger. Yeah, it was just the first time that we heard from ownership since yes. the trade. So that's Understood. obviously why this was a newsworthy item. And for more quotes, there's a full write-up on Giants.com if you want to see the details of what John Mara and Steve Tisch said. But, you know, clearly they talked about how challenging it is. And I think any team, Paul, that parts ways with a talent like Odell Beckham will probably say, if they go back and they reflect on what led up to the decision, how difficult it was. I mean, you don't just make these decisions in the blink of an eye. You have conversations. You determine the pros and cons. And that's exactly what the Giants brass laid out here. Well, if you go by Dave Gettleman's identification as to what a, quote, boatload of picks would be, an offer that you can't refuse, it was the two first-rounders, because that's what a franchise-tagged player will get back in return if he goes somewhere else. And they view Peppers, because he was drafted in the first round, 
uh, you know, two and a half years ago by the Browns. They viewed him as the equivalent of a first rounder who had already had some experience. So you could argue that maybe that's even better than drafting a first rounder because he has a resume already. First rounders don't have a resume when they come into the league. So, you know, he got his pick, plus he got his, quote, first round player, plus he got a third rounder. So according to the definition of boatload of players or offer you can't refuse, Dave Gettleman got the requirement, and that was passed up to ownership, and okay, the requirement's been met, and so you do what you do. The other angle to Peppers is not so much that he is a first-round pick, not that far removed, but to me it's more of the value of his contract and the fact that he has multiple years left on his deal, including the fifth-year option, and this is something that front office executives across the board value. If you are acquiring a contract that is still on a rookie deal, which does not put a great deal of stress on your cap, and you're able to control the rights of that player in the near and long-term future, it makes it a little bit more appealing than acquiring a player who has maybe one year left on his deal, has an opportunity to be a free agent, and won't commit to you long-term. That's also why the Browns were more than willing to acquire Odell Beckham. It goes without saying he has an overwhelming amount of talent, but the Giants just gave him a contract. So the Browns know, hey, we're giving up assets, but at the same time, we're getting a player who we're going to be able to control moving forward. We don't have to worry about him hitting free agency or having to give him the franchise tag. That's extremely valuable when you're talking about the NFL and the structure and the cap and the limitations that you have. So teams take that into consideration. It's not just looking at the player and saying, well, he had 105 tackles, he had three interceptions, so therefore I'm willing to give up a first-round pick. I think it has more to do with also the value of the contract. I think that gets missed in the equation of when people evaluate trades. They're not necessarily looking at from the front office perspective, Paul. When you have a few more years on the contract, a value is attached to that, is my point, as opposed to just individual statistics. Well, because if the guy doesn't have extended years beyond the timing of the deal, you now have to wonder from a business perspective if you're going to make the deal, how is this going to then impact your future investments? Just like the Browns, believe it or not, they're very happy to acquire a wide receiver who gives them some sense of economic certainty. We know they have a lot of cap room to play with, and they got a receiver who is now committed to them by contract with economic certainty for several years, unless, of course, he decides he's going to try to renegotiate and cause Hold a problem. Out or something you like never that. know. Yeah, which is what happened with Antonio Brown, Le'Veon Bell. Correct. You never know if that's going to happen. But I think, for the most part, teams who acquire players that recently negotiated a contract, recently received the contract, I think feel a little bit more secure in giving up the assets. So I think that was a big part of the thinking for both teams, the Giants and the Browns, before they ultimately pulled the trigger on the trade. We want to remind you, Big Blue Kickoff Live is presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. You could also interact with us on Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat. We are going to be cover a variety of teams who are going to be sending prospects to the NFL draft over the course of the program. We're also reviewing some of the comments from John Mara and Steve Tisch in Phoenix at the owners' meetings when they spoke to the media the other day and reflecting for the first time since the Odell Beckham trade took place. Now, I threw out 
quotes from John Mara. This is what Steve Tisch had to say, quote, This was not a decision that was made quickly without a lot of thought and a lot of conversation, discussing with both Dave and Pat, referring to Dave Gettleman and Pat Shermer, and the impact, what it would mean to the club. It's a tough decision, one of the toughest we have had to make in a long time, many, many years. Here's another quote from John Mara, just in terms of the outlook for the 2019 season and their thinking about 2018. Quote, we went into the 2018 season thinking that we were going to keep him long term. I still felt that up until a few days before we made the trade that he was going to be a giant for the 2019 season. Some calls came in and Cleveland got aggressive at the end. It was not an easy decision and certainly not one that was anticipated, certainly until a couple of days before the trade was finalized. End quote. Responding to speculation that the Giants had been thinking of trading him for months before they ultimately pulled the trigger on the deal. That's exactly what John Mara was referring mm -hmm. to. We're going to get back to John Mara and Steve Tisch's quotes about the Odell Beckham trade, but as I mentioned, a big part of today's show is going to be focusing on future NFL prospects who perhaps the Giants will be targeting, considering they have two first-round picks and 12 in total. And we're now going to be focusing on Boston College's prospect, and we're now joined by former BCQB, you can hear him as part of the Eagles radio network. He serves as the sideline reporter, and that is Scott Mutrin. Scott, you got Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino here on Giants.com. Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate the time. How's everything today? Everything's great, Lance and Paul. How are you guys doing? Hey, great to talk to you. Thank you so much. And, you know, one of the things that we wanted to bring you on about is obviously offensive line and Chris Lindstrom, who uh, some people at the Combine even said, well, you're going to see a lot of Chris Snee in him. So why don't we start there? Because we suspect – there is an opportunity for him to maybe be the first BC guy off the board. And I know he's a guard, and the Giants are probably looking more for a tackle, but he's certainly an interesting fellow to talk about. Yeah, Chris is a kid that had to come into Boston College, and un unlike a lot of other people, all offensive linemen, that when they get to college, they're able to redshirt and get some time getting some weight underneath them belt, their belt and getting a little bit of experience. Chris was thrown into the starting lineup as a true fresh freshman, and uh, a humbling experience for him is, is facing, you know, Timmy Jernigan for, for Florida State as a true freshman, as 250 pounds, as Timmy Jernigan kind of had his way with Chris, and, and Chris has really grown and matured over his last four years and, and turned into a pretty solid, uh, you know, pr productive player for Boston College and an anchor for that offensive line this year. Scott, he does have experience at right tackle. I believe he had 11 starts. I know most are projecting him at the guard position. Is there a possibility, based on what you've seen, his body type, that if a team did want to experiment him at tackle, that that is a feasible achievement and a possibility? Or, or even as a, as a projected guard, could he be a center in the league? Yeah, that's. I think it's probably more of he would move down than out. But the thing is, when you look at offensive linemen and, and how they project, it's it's arm length is, is a big factor with that. And and Chris's arms aren't exceptionally long, so that makes that transition to to outside a little more difficult. Although, if you guys know another Boston College uh, player that did play, although down the road for the, for the Jets, uh, Damian Woody was the guy who came out of Boston College as a center sure. yep. and ended up playing some significant snaps out at the tackle position. He had kind of that same thing. Where he didn't have a lot of uh, he didn't have long arms, but he had great feet, and he was able to get past that kind of shortcoming by having great feet and being able to use his athleticism. And Chris does have a, a good amount of athleticism. If you look at his combine numbers, he ran exceptionally well, and not just his forty times, but his agility and three cone times were pretty impressive for a guy of his size. And and that's something that you look at in his ability to maybe bump outside if need be. 
he will in all likelihood be in the second half of the first round. Uh, do you think he would have the football acumen to be a center in the league, given that, again, most of these interior guys have to be flexible enough to, to move around there, but it's a whole other animal to say you're going to make the line calls. That's, that's a big deal. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's good that you brought that up because of the fact is when the, Chris's junior year, the starting center was John Baker, who was a senior, and in the opening game against Northern Illinois, John had his leg broken, and they had to put in a true freshman at center. And when that happened, uh, Chris had to take on a little more ownership of that offensive line, and some of those calls beginning uh, – when he was playing that junior year, he was taking the responsibilities on that because he also had a redshirt, quarter, uh, redshirt mm-hmm. freshman quarterback behind him. So Chris had to be able to go out there and, and go out and make some of those calls to help out and solidify the offensive line. And, and don't forget, he started for four, four years, so he's got over 40 starts underneath his belt, and that experience means you see a lot of reps, you see a lot of different looks, you're playing against a lot of the best competition in the country. Look at how he matched, matched up against a bunch of those Clemson defensive linemen that are getting mentioned in the first with first round with Dexter Lawrence, um, you know, and Wilkins, uh, Christian Wilkins are two guys that, that Chris has played against for a couple of years and has held his own and has done pretty well. So not only is he physically capable, I think his, his mental capabilities are, are, are well shown in, in kind of how he's adapted and taken on a lot of that, that leadership role in his last two years at BC. We're talking with Scott Mutrin. You can hear him on the Boston College Eagles radio network sideline reporter, also former BC quarterback. And, and Scott, if you look at his resume, I mean, his entire family has been, I think, embedded into the BC football program, whether it be his father, his brother, his uncle. And, and sometimes that gets overlooked. But the fact that he's been around football his entire life, he's been taught by his family members. How much do you think that is an asset at all as he makes the transition to the National Football League? Uh, when you're when you've been around football your entire life, and whether you're a coach's son or or, or whether you've just been you know at, your, your father or someone else played, just to be over around the guys and to see how the locker room works and just to hear the game being talked about you, you can't help but you know absorb some of that from everyone. And he's got a younger brother at Boston College right now, a redshirt freshman, Alec Lindstrom, who is you know projecting to be a very good player as well. And when you're just kind of submerged in that, and that matter, matters the most to you. Um, you can't help but just get better from that experience. Having the people around that can give you that acumen and that ability to, to go out and, and to perform the game mentally as well as physically. Like He's been training for this, and his maturity level and that background of his family all being you know kind of engulfed in the game is nothing but a benefit for him. Well, now I want to flop at the defense because there are a pair of edge rushers that certainly have intrigued, and Depending upon who we spoke with at the Combine, some people thought that Zach Allen would actually be the better of the two. And then other people said, well, maybe maybe Ray, Wyatt Ray, could potentially be a guy who goes before Zach Allen. Could you compare and contrast the two fellas and what you think their best attributes are and the things they would have to work on as they came into the pros? Yeah, when you look at Wyatt Ray, you look at a guy that you know played some as a true freshman. He came from from Florida, you know, Fort Lauderdale, St. Thomas Aquinas, a powerhouse high school program, and he happened to be behind you know Harold Landry, who ended up being a second round draft pick mm-hmm. for the Titans last year. And they both were kind of similar guys. They they have long arms. They got good good bendability. Harold may be a little more explosive than Wyatt Ray, but Wyatt Wyatt had a chance to play his junior year and really kind of get some notoriety 
Rowdy. He's got he's got good technique. He's got you know long arms, which are which are beneficial for that position because it's able to help fight off those those offensive linemen. And he's got some good athleticism coming around the corner. Um, he's he had the benefit of with Zach Allen being on the other side and getting some double teams, he had the ability to exploit some of his matchups and be able to take advantage of that. And as you noticed, you saw where he ranked in the nation in, in sacks last year, mm-hmm. that he obviously took advantage of that opportunity. I think he's a little more of a true pass rusher. But then when you look on the other side and you look at Zach Allen, who is coming out of Connecticut, was the Connecticut player of the year, was able to come in and play as well as a true freshman. Zach is just a, is a, is a technician. He's a big, strong kid that he measures up his guys. His football instincts are off the charts. Um, you look at the, the TFLs that he's recorded throughout his career. He's in the top five in Boston College history. Um, he's a guy that just knows how to play the game, uses his, his physical uh, abilities and his strength and his, and his mind to, to win a lot of those matchups. I think in the combine he didn't do, you know, prove maybe as much as he was hoping for in some of the, you know, the running drills. He didn't run an exceptional 40, and some of his cone drills weren't, weren't up to par. But when you get Zach Allen, on the field, and especially with teams that, that I like to say, those, those combine numbers, they matter, but when you put on the tape and you watch Zach Allen compete against a lot of top teams in the ACC and, and throughout the country, he didn't, he didn't suffer from any lack of production when he faced these teams, and you watch him how he held his own versus these guys. He's, he's a very talented player and one of those guys that he's going to be playing on Sundays and people are going to be like, wow, I can't believe we got this guy at this part in the draft because he's an exceptional football player, and that's, that's Zach Allen. You me. know what I like about Zach Allen, Scott? And, and in all honesty, I'm one of these guys who kind of downplays the analytics and the combine stuff from the underwear Olympics. I like to just look at the game tape and say, this guy's a football player. Yeah, and, and Zach's a guy that a perfect example of that, and I can tell you to throw on a couple tapes or a couple of his highlights where you'll see, you know, he'll recognize formation, he'll recognize uh, personnel group, and be able to make an explosive play. And the crazy thing that you guys have to understand in in college football is it's so much different from the pro game. Is that with the pace and the tempo in which all these teams play now in college, you're seeing 85 to 90 plays a game in college, and you can't expect your guys on defense to be able to go 100% for all those 85, 90 plays. But their ability to rise up above and make those big plays when needed is, is a big issue. And Zach Allen was one of those guys that really, that really kind of was those guys that on third or fourth down plays, he would always find a way to make a play. And that was one of the things that really impressed me the most about him is that when you, when you watch him play in big games, that he always seemed to, to rise above that. Production. And when you're going to the NFL, you're, not, you're only going to be out there you know, 50 to 60 plays. Right. So you don't, you don't really have to worry about that sort of fatigue that you get in college. And, and I think he is a two-way player, which is what I like, too. You mentioned before about his strength and his instincts. You know, because let me, let me tell you something, and, and you know this as well, Scott. In the NFL, defensive coordinators, offensive coordinators, I'm sorry, will look at a player and they'll say, okay, he's a really good pass rusher, but he doesn't seem very interested in playing the run. Or we know if we run at him, we can take the teeth out of his pass rush. I don't see that with Zach Allen. Yeah, and, and the one thing that you say is, is, is a great thing to look at is, and sometimes stats can be misleading, but if you look at what he did in 2018, he had 15 TFLs, he had 61 tackles, six and a half sacks, he had an interception, seven pass breakups, you know, and then two block kicks. 
So this is a guy that just finds a way to make plays. When you see stuff like that, like I hate to use the term he's just a football player, you know, because it gets it's such a cliche and it gets overused. But Zach Allen's one of those guys that just finds ways yeah. to get things done. Now, see, for me, that's a compliment. I don't think I don't can think think that that's a negative. I think that's a compliment because I'm an old school guy, Scott. So I'm with you. Go ahead, Vince. <laughs> well, but Scott, I like it. I like guys that can go out and they can make plays. When, it doesn't matter when. It's just that when the when the, the lights are brightest, those guys seem to make their they do their best. And Zach's kind of one of those guys. Well, and Scott, related to what you're just saying in terms about his work ethic and his ability to make big plays, I'm wondering if you're a defensive coordinator and you want to move him inside, do you believe he has enough versatility where you don't have to necessarily play him solely on the edge, but he can move over to a defensive tackle position because of his ability to penetrate and get tackles for loss? Yeah, and that's a big, you know, that's a big factor. And when you want to talk about, you know, the Giants specific, think yeah. about when you guys, when the Giants won the Super Bowl versus the Patriots. What did you do? In your sub personnel groups, yeah. you took your defensive ends and brought them down, and you brought Justin Tuck down into that five technique and and used that that matchup of his his speed and strength versus interior offensive linemen. Well, Zach's one of those guys that can do that. He's going to be strong enough that he can even hold up against the run if you move him down. And you know, with the NFL and all the diverse looks that you're going to get, whether you throw some three four looks or whether some sub packages is he's a smart guy that can that can do all of those things and play well in space as well well last one for me in terms of other notable positions I know Allen and Lindstrom are getting a lot of the attention because of obviously their production but the Giants may be looking to add some depth at safety Scott and the reason I bring up that position I know BC has two safeties Will Harris and Lucas Dennis what is the biggest difference between both of them, and what do you look at as perhaps their upside at the next level? Well, they're kind of two two different players. Lucas Dennis, although he didn't run well in his 40 time, he's got good hip movement and his ability to his ball skills and his ability to to find the football is one of his big you know ball hawking skills is one of his biggest attributes. I think if you look at his his 2017 season, he was tops in the you know close to tops in the nations in interceptions because he moved from corner into the middle of the field and his ability to get sideline to sideline and make some plays and find the ball is was a really big benefit for that Boston College defense that had lost a couple guys into the pros. You look at John Johnson and Justin Simmons, two guys that are making, you know, significant, you know, contributions for the Broncos and for the Rams respectively. Lucas Dennis filled those shoes in in 2017 and kind of played that free safety role. He he he's good tackling, but I, I would not say that's one of his his strengths. I would say he's better at identifying kind of routes and concepts and attacking attacking the ball and, and his ball skills are very good. Now, Will Harris is a guy who's played for a while, but he's a load. And look at his combine numbers, and he kind of blew, you know, blew off the charts there. He ran a 4-4 there. And he's a bigger guy that can play in the box and cover tight ends and some guys in the middle. He's very good at, at, at tackling in space. Boston College is a team that played a lot of man coverage, and they asked Will to make a lot of tackles in space. And Will is a, is a physical guy that is, that is smart. He can blitz. He can cover. He can tackle. He's a guy that I think is, is – is that next big guy for Boston College in the NFL? He was—he's really improved himself, and his athleticism showed off when he did those combine testings. But his tape backs that up as well. 
you know, the one thing that we forgot to ask you about, Ray, uh, because if he's going to play edge in the NFL, he's also going to have to do some coverage stuff. And when you were just talking about the safeties, it just popped into my head. We never even asked you about how often that Ray might have been asked to do any kind of coverage, either on backs or tight ends coming out of, out of the backfield. Uh, is this something that he is he has not been asked to do at all? Or if he has, how proficient is he? Well, he he did it a little bit, but I'd say it's one of those things is because of the fact that Zach Allen was getting so much attention on the edge, you wanted to accentuate, accentuate what you did best and, and why the job was getting to the quarterback. Now, he did play in some space and have to cover guys, but I wouldn't say that was his main job to be able to do that. But if you look at his profile and look at kind of and look at some of those athletic tests that he did at the combine, he's shown the ability that he can actually do that in space and he's a he's a pretty talented athlete. Cool. He is Scott Mutrin. You can hear him on the Boston College Eagles radio network, sideline reporter, also former BC quarterback. Scott, greatly appreciate the time and the insight. Thanks so much for breaking down the class and look forward to talking to you down the road. Appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Lance and Paul. Appreciate it. Absolutely. That is Scott Mutrin, once again, kind enough to give us a few minutes and the outlook for the BC class. They have an offensive lineman, Chris Lindstrom. You got Josh Allen defensive end who also could be perhaps moved in inside to defensive tackle so those are two players to certainly keep close tabs on we're going to be previewing Kansas State and Washington State moving forward but I do want to try to squeeze in as many calls as possible in between so we give you an opportunity to weigh in on a variety of topics so let's go right to the phones here on Big Blue Kickoff Live Monday's edition as we check in with Dennis in North Carolina Dennis welcome to the program what do you got for us well hi there fellas I just have a a little question here about as far as the officiating that they're trying to rectify from what happened in the championship game. Uh, okay. As far as uh, not throwing the flag and all that kind of thing. Well, uh, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but uh, I mean, they, I've seen where they've uh, official throws the flag and all of a sudden say, hold it. Now that they picked it up, they got together and said, nah, no, no, he didn't do that. He, he, he it was, a, it was a good play. Okay, they pick up the flag and nobody says much about it. It could, I feel, it could work in in reverse. The uh, the referee has to start play. He has the ball. He, it doesn't start till he puts it down. He can just look around if he and and they can communicate with hand signals or whatever. You know, hey, I think I saw something there that was really egregious, and then show the flag. And then discuss it for a couple of seconds and say, yeah, did you see it? No, no, because I have officiated baseball, and we used to get together on certain plays like that. And it wasn't a big deal. I don't think you need the guy in the sky or whatever. I think the officials on the field, they allow them to communicate a little more as far as uh, what they see or what they didn't see. If they could pick up a flag, they could throw one later. And, well, the, and, the, and the, if they could have done that in the championship game, it probably would have alleviated all this controversy. I would only say one thing to you, and when the Giants are on the road, uh, I'm often on the sideline uh, watching the game from there uh, as opposed to being upstairs in the press box. And you and I both know, because you said you were an umpire in baseball, when you're on the field, it is a totally different perspective from the eye-in-the-sky look. And I will tell you right now, there are things that you can see down on the field that you can't see upstairs and vice versa. And to just automatically, you know, kind of dismiss the out-of-hand angle to me is being a little bit shallow because you you have to admit and understand that there are things that they're going to see from upstairs that you cannot see on the field. 
I don't I don't understand the reluctance in acquiring that extra viewpoint if you have it available to you. No, yeah, I mean, right. well, you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, are, am I not making sense? They're also uh, having the, uh, uh, they're going to hire the guys, where they're going to get the, the new officials, and uh, then who goes up, then where they're going to get the guy to replace him if they put one upstairs and well, all the other guys. It, well, it's up to, look, they, a logistic problem. The, the league already has a video replay official upstairs in the box at each venue anyway. Now, if you want to tell me that that guy has to have specific qualifications, like he has already worked on the field for five years or 10 years or whatever the case may be, I don't have a problem if you're going to tell me that guy has to have a certain set of mandated uh, experience. Uh, That's fine. But to just discount the fact that he might be able to, with an educated eye, see something... I, I don't I don't see why you would want to do that. And Dennis, appreciate the phone call. I think if you have the technology and you want to expand the rules, you might as well take advantage of the technology. So I don't have any issue with them doing the eye in the sky like the Alliance of American Football is doing. But just and real in quickly, Canada. correct Canadian Football League as well. But his point about communication between officials right now, there's no NFL rule preventing a judge who may be a little bit further away from the play to come over and say, hey, I saw something. I think you should throw a flag. There's nothing preventing that from happening. It may not happen very often. And I think most officials probably would shy away from doing that because you would say the official closest to where the play happened or the potential offense had the best view. So why would you want an individual on the opposite side of the field coming over and saying, oh, you know what, I thought I saw something. Well, did you really? I mean, you didn't really have the best vantage point. That's why the eye in the sky, I think, makes a lot more sense because they could at least go back to a replay angle that gives them the best possible viewpoint to determine whether or not there was a penalty. Yeah, the point is the, the potential debate that two officials may have on the field could easily be cleared up from the guy yeah, upstairs. Yeah, because they're all basing it, what did you see? What did you think you saw? Whereas you just could go upstairs and look at the actual evidence sure. on video replay. I mean, Agreed. Why would you deny yourself from doing that if you're going to expand replay, of course? Derek is in Astoria. Derek, welcome to the Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's on your mind? Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Long-time Hi. listener. I love the show. Thanks Great. for tuning in. Um, I just wanted to get your guys' opinion on this upcoming draft and your thoughts on Devin White at uh, number six. I just I feel like this guy is, like, perfect for our defense. He's a leader. He's a three-down linebacker. Um, and I think it's something that we could really use. Um, just leadership in general on this team has been in question for the past couple of years. And I just wanted to see what you guys thought about that. Well, it's a double-edged sword with him because he's a tremendous athlete. He's incredibly productive. There's no question about it. He can be a real spark plug for a defense. But on the downside, uh, not very good coverage skills as an inside backer. So if you need that type of ability all around athleticism, uh, it's going to be something you got to worry about. Um, if you know, you, you basically you're not going to be able to ask him to cover and be a three-down backer, and that's going to take away some of his value. The other thing you got to worry about is uh, he misses a lot of tackles. Uh, maybe it's because he's overaggressive. Maybe it's because he's not recognizing the plays properly. I, I don't know the answer to that. To me, six is too high for him. But I understand that somebody, somebody at some point is going to say, look, the production is just too sweet. And, and in between the tackles, he does have a lot of athleticism. Maybe not necessarily, again, in coverage. But there are things he can do that will suit a team very well. 
Well, I, I just don't see him at six. And the other thing to keep in mind is, and I'm not saying that track record in history means an awful lot considering the Giants have a new GM, but the Giants have not taken a linebacker in the first round since Carl Banks in 1984. So it's not a position to answer your question, Derek, where they've been utilizing first-round assets on that spot. Doesn't mean that Devin White's not in the equation. The other thing is, I think if the Giants are going to bring in a linebacker, considering it's a 3-4 alignment, I think they also want to see somebody that could come in and has the ability to get after the quarterback consistently. And White has okay numbers. He's shown that he can get to the quarterback, but I don't know if that's necessarily the number one strength of his game. And I think in this defense, you want a linebacker to be able to pursue the quarterback and get there. And that, to me, is something that they're certainly going to weigh if they're going to consider him at number six. Well, and also you have to remember edge rushers because of their pass rushing skills to make big plays that way yeah. are going to be valued higher. 100%. I mean, that's got just it, the way it, it is. Yeah. Thanks. And appreciate the phone call, Derek. Thanks so much for weighing in. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. The Giants are going to have two first-round picks now, 6 and 17. So they can certainly address a variety of areas. Linebacker, if you look at the roster right now, they could use depth there. I still think defensive lineman slash edge rusher is probably the top priority when you look at the defensive personnel. I would agree. So, and it also fits the depth of this draft. Indeed. I mean, there's a plethora of pass rushers. That doesn't mean, though, Up that top. you should wait, though. If you love the guy, Paul, at six. Oh, you got to grab him. you got to grab him. Yep. You should certainly not wait based on the fact that, oh, well, if we wait till 17, we can still get <laughs> an elite pass rusher. Well, we have discussed Boston College's prospects. We're now going to shift gears to Kansas State's prospects. And they have one in particular who plays on the offensive mm -hmm. line and to provide more insight on that. We're now joined by Jay Binkley, host on KCSP 610 AM in Kansas City. Jay, you got Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here on Giants.com, Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate the time. How's everything? Hey, good, Lance. Paul, how you guys doing? Very good. Let me ask you something. This Dalton Reisner kid is just a pleasure to talk to. Uh, I had a chance to chat with him at the Combine. What a terrific young man. What a, a great football mentality he presented uh, in addition to being very outgoing. And I, I think he would just fit in great with this Giants offensive line room. In fact, I think he'd probably fit in anywhere in an offensive line room because he's a very lively guy. Uh, before we get down to the breakdown as to him as a football player, tell, tell me about the intangibles that he's going to bring because everyone knows that chemistry is incredibly important along the offensive line. In fact, it's probably more important there than any other position on the field. Very likable. Uh, he's a charitable guy that does charity type stuff. Uh, this, this guy's a, a class act, uh, you know, from a class program. You know, playing underneath Bill Snyder, uh, you learn a lot of lessons. Bill Snyder is the type of coach that, uh, you know, before he retired this year was, you know, really a high, high character guy that would send letters out to when they played Carson Wentz at North Dakota State. He sent handwritten letters uh, to players, and that's a reflection on some of the players that he has. This is a three-year team captain. And when you can do that when you're a sophomore, albeit he was a redshirt sophomore, a junior and a senior, be a three-year team captain, means you gain the respect of your teammates. And um, that's big in the locker room. You know, I know a lot of teams, uh, I know the Chiefs have tried to do it in the past. They look at team captains and uh, who was a team captain in college because I think that reflects a lot 
on the type of character and leadership of those individuals. No, I think that's a great point, Jay. Actually, the Giants a few years ago, they only selected players that had that C on their jersey because that was something that they valued as well. Now, one of the things that jumps out to me about Dalton Reisner is his versatility. You know, we're talking about a player that played center, also played tackle. I don't think necessarily a team is going to draft him and play him at center, but how much of an asset is that versatility that if you do want to move him around and maybe even toy with him at guard, that that is something that's feasible? He can move inside, and that's the thing. You know, playing right tackle, uh, he's a very good run blocker. Uh, needs to work a little bit with the footwork as far as some of his pass blocking, but you're talking about a you know, three-time All-Big 12 performer, first-team All-Pro football focus uh, this year. Tackle's been two-year All-American, but uh, he played center. His first year he played center, moved to tackle, but he could be inside. He goes around 300 to 314 is his range, but in the NFL, you know, if he got up to about 320, 325, I could see him moving inside. He's got that flexibility. But any any tackle that you have that can, you know, transition and actually play center as well, that means you can pretty much play anywhere on the line. And I know teams love guys with versatility and move them around. And I know Andy Reid has done that with the Chiefs as far as, you know, taking uh, linemen and putting them at center or putting them back at tackle. And uh, they've done that in the past. They continue to do it. But the ability to play center is very, very valuable because that's the guy that, you know, calls out the offensive line signals. But um, extremely – he's a guy that loves football. You know, you talk nowadays, do you love football or not? Uh, this is a guy that eats, sleeps, and breathes football. And uh, he would be the type of guy to play anywhere the Giants would want him to play. We were hearing at the Combine that he would be probably early second-round value because he's not with the premier elite tackles like Jawan Taylor of Florida uh, or, or maybe the kid from Alabama, uh, Jonah Williams. But when you start talking about offensive line, especially guys who can play tackle, it is a deep class. Dave Gettleman, the Giants GM, even told us at the Combine, look, there are a bunch of tackles, offensive tackles, uh, that are going to be you know, plug-and-play, draftable, guys who are high-quality prospects. So to me, I'm thinking early second round is good value for him. What are you hearing? What's the, the scoop out there, the rumor mill, talking about in terms of where he might land and maybe a, a team that would be a good fit for him? Most people see him as a second-round grade, and I agree with that. I think what the Giants picked 37th right. in the second round, that would actually be a perfect spot uh, to grab Dalton Reisner, in my opinion. You know, you're close to first-round value, you know, slipping down to 37. I think it's worth belief at 37 to go ahead and grab him before somebody else does because of all those other intangibles, the program he's coming from, playing with Bill Snyder, four-year starter. This guy started 50 of 51 games. I mean, that is incredible durability that he possessed, and that's going to be a strong commodity in the NFL. Um you know, I, I don't think even drafting 37 would be a reach for the Giants. The shoulder injury that he had, I guess, a year or so ago, uh, had the surgery. Um, I'm going to assume that because everyone talks so glowingly about him, that did not impact his game at all this past season? No, no, just strong as ever. You know, so first-team All-American pro football focus and and, and, and you name it. I mean, yeah, the, he's, he's a football player, and he's incredibly durable. And uh you got to like guys that uh, are on the field no matter what. Well, in terms of... huge intangible. In terms of just the style of offense 
Jay, that Kansas State ran. You know, how do you see him making the transition from college to the pros, regardless of what may be the type of system that the NFL team that brings him in is going to play? Do you think he's open enough in terms of run blocking and pass scheme that he could adapt to just about anything? Yeah, the pat like this is the footwork and pass blocking. Those are things uh, that will have to be accrued by him. Kansas State um, ran the football a lot with the quarterbacks. Um, they did a two-quarterback system. Uh, one was, a, I would say, above-average runner, and one was an excellent runner at the two quarterbacks that they would use in that offense. Uh, but Bill Snyder usually, you know, he comes from that uh, Urban Meyer, Tim Tebow method of using quarterbacks to run the football, and Kansas State's always done that, although they did a little more pocket passing uh, this year. So he had to do a lot of pass pro this year, but it, it's, it, but it's that flexibility and the ability to move. Um, the transition when your quarterback's getting outside the pocket, can you get outside the pocket? You know, maybe the footwork needs a little bit of work, but these are all things that can be done in the NFL. He's got the frame, got the frame to put more weight on. Uh, run blocking, he's extremely good. I mean, this guy, when you want to talk about blocking for Saquon Barkley, this is your guy right here. He's a mauler. Well, that certainly would be uh, music to Barkley's ears for sure. I want to go back because I like to take notes as we're talking to our, our experts around uh, the, the uh, country, Jay. You mentioned the footwork, though. Coming out of the three-point stance in the NFL is something that, as Dave Gettleman has lamented, uh, NFL teams need to project because teams in college aren't doing that anymore. Uh, how much of an issue do you suspect that would be for him given the athletic skills that he does or does not possess? Well, here's one example, and I'll, I'll refer you to the game tape of Kansas State versus Mississippi State in Montez Sweat mm-hmm. uh, that people absolutely love in this draft. Pretty much he lost probably one battle to Montez Sweat and handled him pretty much the entire game. And that's, you know, going against and um, Texas, um, the outside linebacker, Minahue, um, he dominated him as well. Uh, two guys that are, you know, first round, early second round. To well, Sweat's obviously early first round. Yeah. Many of you maybe first or second, but he did extremely well against them. And that's two of the best pass rushers coming out in this year's draft. So, you know, he was able to handle the, that kind of speed and that kind of power coming around the edge. So, I think he could transition to the NFL very easily. He is Jay Binkley, host on KCSP 610 AM in Kansas City, joining us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live to weigh in on Dalton Reisner and his upside as he gets set to move to the NFL. Jay, greatly appreciate the time and the insight. Look forward to talking to you down the road. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Hey, thank you, guys. Let me know anytime. Appreciate it. Absolutely. That is Jay Binkley once again on Dalton Reisner, who is certainly – a reasonable player that the Giants could target in the high second round, as Jay mentioned, with that pick in the 30s. Time will tell, but you could argue that the Giants may want to bring in more competition at the right tackle position after Chad Wheeler was the main starter last season. That could be one of the remaining offensive line positions that they certainly look to address, either at the tail end of free agency or through the draft. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. You could also chime in via hashtag Giants chat. We're going to shift gears to Washington State, and then we'll try to fill out the remainder of the program with respect to your phone calls as we continue to look ahead to the 2019 NFL Draft and recap still the 
Odell Beckham trade as John Mara and Steve Tisch weighing in in Phoenix at the owners' meetings. But we covered BC. We covered Kansas State. Up next (laughs) on this marathon edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live is Washington State. And we are now joined by the play-by-play voice for the Cougars Radio Network, and that is Matt Chazanow. Matt, you got Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Giants.com, Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate the time. How's everything today? It's fantastic. It's, it's great to talk to you guys. I texted a little bit with you before. I'm, I'm from New Jersey and and uh, been been old Giant Stadium a bunch of times as a kid. And uh, you guys will get a kick out of this. Ron Stone's kid is is on our team out here. So I, I saw Ron. Sure. Uh, you know, late '90s. I saw Ron here in the hotel in Pullman, Washington, and we were talking Giants football a little bit this year. Well, I remember Ron when he was a Pro Bowl guard for the Giants. They had picked him up uh, via free agency from the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, and he was a big, big man, I might add. I don't know how big his son is, but Ron was a load. <laughs> he is, he's a monster. He still is a monster. He's, he is, his, his bear paw almost crushed me. Uh, his, his kid is uh, his kid's a safety, so he's not quite as big as dad. His, his kiddo's uh, uh, about, uh, oh, I don't know, 6'1", 6'2", and, and we'll call him 200-something pounds and, and, and flying around out there. Well, speaking of the trenches, as you can relate to from being a longtime Giants fan, that's what makes or breaks this franchise, and Washington State certainly has one in the upcoming draft, and that is Andre Dillard. And I think one of the things that jumps out to me when you look at an offensive lineman in college, Matt, is somebody that has experience, and Andre certainly has that experience. It's not as if they just threw him in the mix his senior year. What has jumped out to you? considering he's been at the left tackle position and he's played so many games during the course of his tenure at Washington State? couple things. First of all, the athleticism is off the charts, and you could see that right away. He's got incredibly fast feet. His dad played, so he's been coached in the game forever. And, and his, his feet and his hands, and, and that's also, you know, it's funny also, one of the, the Pac-12 network analysts is also a former Giant, Glenn Parker, for a year. Sure. And Glenn... Yeah, Glenn played for Arizona out here on the West Coast. He's one of the West Coast guys. And years ago, like when Andre was more, before he was getting a ton of time as a freshman, sophomore, he came up to the booth and said, hey, you guys have a pro on this on this on the o-line and and we thought he was talking about joe Dahl, who's now a detroit lion and we all kind of knew joe was really good he was an all-pack o-lineman he said he said i like joe and i really like andre dillard and dillard hadn't played a ton and it was the first i'd heard of it so so those who know what they're looking for off in terms of in terms of foot speed in terms of uh you know hands hand size and, and technique have spotted andre for years now and he's really athletic and and then the other thing that kind of jumps out, like you said, is is at times that blind side for Minshew and even for Luke Falk prior was was just silent. I mean, no one got through. So you're talking about tons of experience and also results. And we all know it's an unheralded position, but you're right. It's the key to the game. It's the whole deal. If the quarterback has time, especially in the air raid, if the QB has time, you win the game. And the Cougs have won a lot of games specifically <laughs> because of Andre Dillard. Well, now, when I was out at the Combine, and a lot of people were saying to me, you know, Dillard's getting talked about in that second line or second wave of offensive tackles that are going to come out in this draft. But don't be surprised if by the time he gets to the NFL, he'll be talked about in the upper group. 
because he is that talented, that athletic. And there were guys out there at the Combine who said to me, don't be surprised if he actually can handle the speed rushers at left tackle in the NFL. So I'm going to ask you to project now. I know what you said he did at Washington State is dynamic. But when he makes the jump to the next level, will he be able to handle the left tackle spot? Or is he going to be better suited to right tackle? No, I think he plays. I think it translates. I, I do. I mean, you know, you, you've got your Orlando Paces and your Jonathan Ogdens and your sort of generational tackle talents. And, and those guys are so big and so freaky. And, and, and I don't know if Dillard is, is going to, you know, he's the guy who's going to kind of fight his way into that first second wave, first wave there, as you just mentioned. But if he does, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, I'm, this is a guy who, who went up against some of the best in the past 12. And, and what I've noticed is like guys like DeForest Buckner, who's now a 49er, was drafted as a 49er, mm-hmm. who was an all-pack D lineman. He handled guys. He did. He did. You know, Solomon Thomas, the Stanford D lineman, he went up against guys. Uh, Vita Vea, who's a, who also is a Niner, sure. he was yep. a Husky. These are big guys. These are guys who have succeeded in the combine process, who've been drafted highly, who, who Dillard did okay with. You know, and, and they would actually kind of shift away from Andre because. What's the point? <laughs> let's, let's try and go somewhere else. Uh, so he, he's really good. He really is, and 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 I think it plays. I think it works. We're talking with Matt Chazanow, Washington State play-by-play voice for the Cougars Radio Network. You mentioned with him protecting the blind spot, it was almost as if the quarterbacks were untouchable. Well, that's certainly one aspect of an offensive line play. What about run blocking? I know the Washington State offense, Matt, was prolific. I mean, we're talking about an offense with Mike Leach that put up points in the blink of an eye, but when it comes to his ability to assist in the run blocking scheme, what it all impressed you, what it all jumped out to you about that? This is always the big question with a Kugo line is, is how does it work when you're not going to throw the ball 70 times a game? <laughs> and, exactly. And, and, and I think it plays uh, – he, he'll go ahead and bully people. You know, he, he also – one of the things with the athleticism is, is he'll get up in you and, and run block just fine. And, and James Williams, who's also in the NFL draft, who would not surprise me if somebody decided they wanted to, to take a flyer on him and, and get him and, and make sure he's theirs. Um, and he'll for sure be in a camp somewhere and – if he gets drafted, he ran a sub four six, and so that, that that's fast enough. And he led the nation in, in, in missed tackles in the open field, forced missed tackles in the open field, and and he is he is really shifty, professionally shifty, in the open field, and and uh, and I think with Andre blocking for James a lot of the time on handoffs. There were a lot of holes for him if he went between the tackles. The other thing that was always impressive about Andre, in speaking to his athleticism, and they transferable skill they run a lot of screen passes he was so athletic they didn't have him downfield blocking i mean they'd, they'd get him out there okay. they'd have him they'd have him bump the d line they'd have him go run out to a to a you know to a linebacker or or, or even get him get him as deep as they could because if they could they know they'd break the play open go, go for a touchdown and, and you know all that stuff is why is why he's being talked about in that first wave, as, as you mentioned. It's a good way to put it. You know, I don't, I don't know if that puts him first round. I don't know if puts him second round. Team need and agents and all that stuff plays into it. But he, he is, he's, he's that good. He's special. I mean, he's partly why the Cougars won eleven games and and have, and have been regularly competing for the Pac-12 title. If you're going to do that with the air raid, 
you need pro alignment and, and really good ones, and, and and I think it works. Yeah, for sure. A lineman who can get out and help block for the screen when you're running an offense that does feature a running back like Barkley who caught 91 passes this past season yeah. can be huge when he's getting to the second level and now Barkley is juking his way down the field on a 50-yard pass play that you know only was thrown maybe a yard or two behind the line of scrimmage. So that's a big deal for sure. Let me ask you about Gardner Minshew because I guess he came up momentarily during our conversation before. Now, I know that the Giants are not necessarily looking at him as a, as a guy to, you know they're going to draft to, to succeed Eli Manning. At least it wouldn't appear that way. But he's certainly an intriguing prospect to a lot of folks. Uh, people I talked to at the Combine didn't really know where to place him in terms of third round, fourth round, does he have more upside than maybe some other people think, or is he going to be a career NFL backup? While we have you on the line, we really need to ask you about him. Yeah, for sure. So you're talking about a guy who really burst on the scene. I mean, he had sufficient at best numbers at East Carolina University and then transferred out here and just exploded. And there are a couple reasons for that. Internally, he had the opportunity and and, and made the most of it, and, and he's got a great personality. He's a great guy, so th- that helped out here. He, he he really did bring the team together in the off season, and and I, you know the NFL is a different beast with rookies and and expectations and contracts and all that stuff. It's, but great kid, great guy, and and somebody who. Um, you know, in the era of the personality mattering a lot, especially at the quarterback position in the NFL, and it always has, but there's a lot of scrutiny on it. He's an A plus in that regard. In terms of just what you're going to do with the ball, he's he's incredibly accurate. And Coach Leach, and 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 others that I spoke to during games, so you know, at halftime or or other QBs, and the thing they always said was. He trusts the accuracy of his arm so much that at certain moments, and there's a throw I'm thinking of against USC where they beat the Trojans, and then, and then a couple throws against Utah that broke plays open because it was so gutsy to put it in the spot. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't, we're not talking like a Brett Favre, I'm going to hurl it across the field or, a, <laughs> or an Aaron Rodgers. It was more just, it was very precise, you know, and he would put it right down the hashes and it would bust a play open because it was right at the teeth of the defense, but he knew the ball would get in the right spot and, and, it, and it went for a big play. And so big time accuracy. Um, he's athletic. You know, he ran for a 10 yard touchdown against Utah. And, and I bring that up because Utah's defense was one of the best in the country. So it was a top two defense in the pack. He ran for a 10 yard score. Not every QB could do that. Um, his arm strength is, is is good. It's not the best, you know. We've we've seen better in the in the in the league in, the, in a league that has featured a, a ton of pro QBs lately. Jared Goff, Josh Rosen, sure, Sam Darnold, and a lot of pro QBs out here. Luke Falk. His arm strength fits in with those guys. Uh, I don't know that it quite stands out like like Darnold or, or even Justin Herbert at Oregon, who has a cannon. But mm-hmm. you know, he's not as good as Minshew. He has not been as good as Gardner. And he's good, but but Gardner's accuracy and and understanding of the system uh, put him at the next level. And, and I think uh, for him to to really go from unknown to third or fourth round in one year is probably a testament to something he could probably do in the right situation in the NFL and be a starter. He is Matt Chazanow, Washington State play-by-play voice for the Cougars Radio Network. Matt, greatly appreciate the time and the insight on Washington State's prospects, and look forward to talking to you down the road. Thanks again. Thanks, Matt. It, 
This is fun, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. You got it. Same here. Matt Chazanow once again right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. And a reminder that the program is presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. Hashtag Giants Chat. We have a few minutes left on the show. If you do still want to give us a ring, we'll try to squeeze in a call or two before we wrap up shop. Obviously, we dedicated a lot of today's program to college prospects, and we're going to continue to do that, by the way, all throughout the draft. We're going to be hearing from analysts, play-by-play announcers, reporters from a variety of schools across the country just to give us a good taste of what this draft class is going to provide. So thanks again to all of our guests today in covering Boston College, Kansas State, as well as Washington State. Before we do wrap up, though, Paul, I want to get back to some of the comments from John Mara and Steve Tesh since we briefly talked about it off the top and we read some quotations that they told reporters in Phoenix. And once again, not earth-shattering news that was said by ownership, but I do think it's important to hear what they had to say given the fact that the only person that we heard from was essentially Dave Gettleman in the wake of the trade, and he made the media rounds. He spoke to a variety of stations, but the one narrative that we were hearing consistently was that why would the Giants trade Odell Beckham if they just recently gave him a contract? Why not trade him before you even give him the contract? And I read the quote from John Mara, and... Listen, fans can believe whatever they want. They can run with whatever quote, whatever narrative they want. Paul and I telling you things here is not going to necessarily do anything. But I'm just, I get tired of hearing, Paul, that people make the assumption that the Giants had plans to trade Odell Beckham for months. They did. For years. They did. And that's why this trade makes no sense. Yet you hear from Dave Gettleman, you hear from John Mara, you hear from Steve Tisch. And it's another example of, and I brought this up tons of times, it's very similar to the Eagles when they shipped Sam Bradford out of town. They gave him an extension because when they gave him an extension in 2016, Paul, they had every intention of him potentially being their starting quarterback. And then Carson Wentz gets drafted because they liked Carson Wentz. They bring in Chase Daniel. Teddy Bridgewater gets hurt. All of a sudden, the market changes, and the timeline of events gets shuffled up. Lance, I don't want to waste any more time on this ridiculous debate. It's simple. You're not shopping a player if you'll simply take a phone call and listen to somebody. Those are two totally different things. And that's what happened in the Giants' case. They were not shopping the guy, but they were willing to listen. That's it. Case closed. There's really nothing to talk about. Let's head back to the phone lines before we wrap up shop. Mike is in Oakland. Mike, welcome to Big Blue Kickoff Live. What do you got for us? Hey, guys. It's nice to be back. Hi. Good to hear from you. What's on your mind? down for a while. Yeah, so you know, I just I just wanted to um, I just want to put my two cents in there that I think I'm in the minority, but um, you know, I actually uh, support and understand the Odell Beckham trade, and where I'm going on the record is saying that we'll be a better team this year uh, without him than we were last year, and not because he's not a great talent, um, but because he was our biggest tradable asset, and frankly, we needed three players for one, so. Um, you know, I'm sorry to see him go. I think all Giants fans are sorry to see the guy go, despite you know some of the some of the silliness he he brought to some of his actions on and off the field. Mm-hmm. But you know, he was a great player. He was popular in the locker room. His numbers speak for themselves. But look, I think Jabril Peppers was a great pickup. I'm hoping he's going to mature into a uh, a safety who can actually cover tight ends because he sure has the speed. He's a Jersey boy. You know, you've got to love that. Um, and he clearly can play and you know look we got two first round picks 
um, and we can, uh, you know, we got a new, we got a third round back. We got uh, a cornerback that nobody's even seen play at this level, but everybody believes he was a second round talent and he's going to come back healthy. You know, um, even without him, you know, just look at the safety tandem we have this year. It's got to work better than our safety tandem did last year. You know, um, because it was kind of a it was a mess last year, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm spacing out the kid who went to well, landed college at Curtis Riley, who actually just went no, to right, your neck yeah, of the woods. Riley, Riley just it's signed Curtis with the Raiders. Riley, yeah, he did the Raiders. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I've I've never seen so many missed tackles and so much confusion on the back end with Curtis Riley. I wish him well, but you know, Anton Bethea is a is a is a pro. He's been an All Pro. He knows the game. He's he's proven he can still play. So if you look at Jabril Peppers and Bethay on the back end, our safeties are going to be better. I got to believe. I mean, our offensive line's already better. And once we get a, uh, you know, I think we'll upgrade the right tackle. Our offensive line will be better. I think they're going to get some talent on defense. Overall, you got to look at the team. It's a team game. Odell's a great player, but hell, I'll take that three to one. Understood. And appreciate the phone call, Mike. Thank you. And Thanks oh, so by the way. Right the Giants were also able to reverse the fourth and fifth round picks out of the Vernon Zeitler trade. So now the Giants get their fourth back and the Browns revert back to the fifth round. Now, look, that may not mean something to some people, but it sure does when all of a sudden in the fourth round, the Giants are making that pick on the board and you realize that they would still have had to have gone many, many other players down the board if they had flopped the picks with the Browns into the fifth round. Uh, it's a small, small part of the overall scope of the deal. But trust me, when they're actually making that selection, the Giants will be happy that they're on the board making a pick because they're going to have more guys to choose from than if they had to go back into the fifth round, which they originally did with the Browns trade involving the linemen. Yeah, it basically stayed status quo by the trade because it was reversed. There's not no movement. Everybody goes back to their original selections. But, I mean, just really quickly getting back to Mike's point, I mean, that to me is the major philosophy behind this trade. The fact that you move one player to get multiple assets, including a player, to address multiple needs. Mm -hmm. You know, one player on offense is not going to solve issues on defense. It's not going to necessarily solve issues on special teams. So... When you look at the teams that made the playoffs this year, you didn't have teams that had one of three facets that got them there. You had teams that had multiple facets that got them there. and That's, that's the where, way it usually works. Yes. Well, I know <laughs> I'm stating the obvious, but sometimes you have to revisit the obvious when it gets lost in translation that as much as people want to focus on a quarterback playing hero ball— the teams that win Super Bowls are the teams that also have defense, special teams, a running game, an offensive line, and so forth. And it's right. not just one player, is my point, alone that is going to resurrect the team. Okay. And it's as simple as that. All right, before we wrap things up, just a reminder, Big Blue Kickoff Live presented by Coors Light. Download the Coors Light Rewards app to win amazing Giants prizes. We'll be back up and running with Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We're going to preview three more schools as we get set for the 2019 NFL Draft, and we'll try to squeeze in as many phone calls as well. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Monday, and always stay locked right here to Giants.com. Have a good one.